I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Once Upon a Gene, and I'm your host, Effie Parks. Thanks for tuning in today. Today's guest is the mother to beautiful twins named Maxwell and Riley. At just a year old, Maxwell was diagnosed with a story some of us know all too well, a disease too rare to have a formal name called SLC-6A1. They were told nothing could be done, and Amber decided to fight like a mother. She left her career the same day and has since spent 75 hours a week working toward a treatment. She's a leader in the rare disease community and is the founder and CEO of SLC-6A1 Connect. Her efforts have been highlighted in the Huffington Post, BuzzFeed, Bloomberg, CNBC, People Magazine, and many more. She's relentless. She has sent scientists cookies every day via Uber Eats until they called her back. She just shipped me some cookie dough this week, so thank you so much for that, Amber. You made my husband very happy. She raised $1.5 million in just 18 months against their goal of $7 million to advance a gene therapy clinical trial. COVID has impacted the progress for rare disease, working on cures and treatments in a big way. But that is not going to slow Amber down a bit. She will be back with more force when the doors open up so she can help her son. To connect with Amber, you can find her at slc6a1connect.org. And she can be reached at any hour of the day to advance science. Please enjoy my conversation with Amber Freed. Hi, Amber. How are you? I am doing all right. How about yourself? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. I'm so happy to be connected to you. I'm looking forward to our chat today. I've been looking forward to this all week. Also, girl, you get around. And of course, I mean, in like the best and most complimentary way. So congratulations on all of your work and your exposure. You're amazing. And I can't wait for a wider audience to even hear your story. We have a couple things in common. Both of our little boys share a rare genetic disease uh, that has a lot of mirrored symptoms, actually. And we're both from Montana. That's true. Uh, Raised in Billings, born outside of Yellowstone. Wow. Opposite, opposite ends of Montana with me. But can you give us a little background of kind of the beginning of your journey as an advocate for yourself, but also for your sisters starting in Montana? Sure. Uh, of course I can. So a little bit of background on myself. I was raised in a household that was afflicted by drug and alcohol abuse. And although my sisters, I have younger twin sisters, are only two and a half years younger than me, we really needed to have an adult in our household. And so I fulfilled that role when they needed cookies for Valentine's Day. I made them, I made sure they 
were dressed and went to school every day, helped them with their homework, essentially fulfilled the role of mom and dad to them. And when I turned 18, I actually became their legal guardian. Dang, Amber, that's a lot of responsibility for a young girl to take on. It really was a lot of responsibility. I would say as a child, I definitely had the weight of the world on my shoulders. We spent most holidays waiting for one of my parents to get out of detox or be released from a psychiatric hold in the hospital. But what I would say is that it gave me a tremendous sense of grit and determination. Yeah, I think that yeah, going through something like that and taking over as mother and father probably served you well in your future endeavors with Maxwell. That's, I think, a very fair way to put it. And even at a very early age, I knew the only way to really transcend our generational poverty and break the control of abuse was through education. And so I really threw myself into school and focused on education, taking care of my sisters, and community service work. It's really amazing how throughout the journey to help my son, those lessons I learned at a very early age have actually taken me the furthest in helping children. And I think key word there is learned, actually learning from those lessons and applying them into your life is really a really cool skill. I appreciate that. I definitely <laughs> learned the hard way. So I know you got a bunch of scholarships and you had a wonderful opportunity to go to school in Denver and it led you to a pretty interesting career path that sort of came full circle in the end and we'll get to that. But can you tell us about what you went to school for and why? Sure. So as I said, I threw myself into education and I received a full academic scholarship to attend the University of Denver, um, partially paid for by the Broncos and also Janice Henderson investors. I went to school thinking that I really wanted a medical background. I actually couldn't decide between pre-med and violin performance. But I quickly realized the amount of debt that med school would put me in. And I also realized that violin performance, uh, it's, it's very hard to make a good living playing in a symphony. It's mostly just a hobby. And so I chose the business path and decided to go down the equity analyst role because you're a professional researcher. You can learn about so many companies and what drives the economy. And what I loved about the field the most is that you're a constant student. It doesn't matter how much research you put into a company. The stock market has this incredible mechanism to remind you that you're stupid every single day and can work harder to um, really understand a company or develop your thesis. Yeah, it sounds like you were probably pretty good at doing that, knowing what I know about you now. 
Well, thank you. I certainly enjoyed my job. I covered consumer companies. So what that means in layman's terms is I picked stocks that went into a mutual fund. So I'd meet with the management of different corporate groups, like as an example, the management of L Brands, which owns Victoria's Secret and Bath and Body Works and understand their corporate plan and make a decision on behalf of my investors if this was a good use of their money, of their well-earned retirement money in many cases. So you conquered a lot of obstacles, was a mother to your sisters, got a full-ride scholarship to school, got an amazing job, and then you decided to start a family with your husband. Tell me about those little kiddos coming into the world. Oh my goodness, they were so loved before they were even born. And like what happens to many people, when you want children, all of a sudden it's very hard to have them. And so we went through two years of IVF to be blessed with twins. And I love to show the picture the moment my husband found out we were having twins. He grabbed his chest out of pure shock and happiness. But what I also like to say is it was the moment he realized he was never going to retire. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. So how long after you had the twins did you notice something affecting Maxwell? Well, they were born a little early because I'm five foot two and a hundred pounds and twins just didn't work well with my body type. And they were perfect. They looked perfect. They were doing everything right. And I will just say the second we heard Maxwell's little cry, he was born first. I think every parent listening can just remember the first time they heard their baby cry. And all of a sudden, everything in life that ever mattered doesn't matter anymore. Jobs don't matter. Homes don't matter. The only thing that really matters is these beautiful little babies. And so we brought Maxwell and Riley home from the hospital and things were going wonderful. We had more visitors than can be imagined. And at around four months, I just noticed Maxwell wasn't doing the same things as his natural benchmark, his twin sister, Riley. So what started you kind of on a mission to get some answers about that? Were you getting brushed off by family members and doctors like many of us were? Or did you kind of get someone to listen to you right away? Oh, I was completely brushed aside. My pediatrician kept saying, don't worry, boys are slower than girls and you're a crazy new mother. And I was a crazy new mother. Like these were, these are my reasons to live. They're my meaning in life, but just mother's intuition said much differently that something was wrong. Riley was inquisitive. She was reaching for toys. She was exploring her environment and it was almost like Maxwell was stuck in his body. And over time, I would say from four months to nine months, I could see the tone change in my pediatrician that went from things are going to be fine to something's really wrong and we need to get you in to see some specialists. I had a very similar 
situation. So how did you get that first genetic test for Maxwell? It was really hard. And the odd thing was we went to Children's and met with a special care clinic, which essentially quarterbacks a complex child's medical appointment when they're in a situation like ours. Like we didn't even know who to meet with at first. And so one of our first meetings was actually with an ophthalmologist because we thought, well, maybe he just can't see right. He's always staring at his finger. Maybe he can't see his surroundings. Maybe it's a vision problem. And it was during that meeting with the ophthalmologist that he turned to me and said, Amber, I can tell you that your baby can see, but I don't know if he's going to live. And I was so defensive at first because, one, that's a horrible thing to hear, but Secondly, why is the ophthalmologist delivering this news to me? Yeah, and the delivery itself. I I don't know if defensive (laughs) is the right word for how you were, rightfully so. Well, it was just really hard to hear. And of course, I was like, why would would you say this? Like, what, what in the world did you see in his eye? And he said, this is a story of so many patients I see that, they think it's a problem with vision, but it's their brain. And many times it's a rare disease. And the only way anybody is going to figure this out is through genetic testing. And it's probably going to take months, which it did because our insurance fought tooth and nail. But the ophthalmologist referred you to one, to a geneticist, and they got you that test ultimately. They did. They did. And I took, oh, about six months to get the results back. And during that time, my discussion with the ophthalmologist was just so horrifying and sad that I came home and I didn't even tell my husband because what was the point in us both completely melting down? one of us had to keep functioning and I would just stay up all night and cry for six months while we were waiting to figure out what was wrong. Meanwhile, Maxwell was declining before my eyes. Amber, you didn't tell your husband for six months or you just didn't tell him right away? Well, he knew we were going through genetic testing, but I never told him what the ophthalmologist said. I told a couple of very close friends because I couldn't physically get the words out myself. I just wanted to physically vomit every single time I I thought about it. I feel you there. That's a lot to, that's heavy to carry by yourself for a while. I'm, I'm glad you told someone. I relate also like when Casey and I are both upset at the exact same time. I know that that doesn't work. That can't happen. <laughs> Only one of us can sort of feel that way at one time or no jobs can get done. So I get it for sure. It, it's so true. And especially when you're up against something so horrifying with no answers, of course, the first thing everybody asks is questions. And rightfully so. But when you as a parent answer and say, I have no idea, it's, it's just the worst feeling in the world. 
So when they called you and told you that they had the results from his genetic test, then what happened? Well, we knew it was horrible news because the doctors told us to come in and that they would clear their schedules for us. And so they they really didn't have to say anything more. We called in an emergency babysitter and rushed down to Children's Hospital. And the way I describe it to listeners is that we were led to a really bad newsroom, a room that was full of doctors with incredibly sad faces. And you could tell that they were equally sad to be there as sad as we were. And they just said to us, your son has been diagnosed with SLC6A1. And I was so confused. I looked up and and I said, my son has been diagnosed with a, a flight number? Like, what's the name of the disease? Like, who discovered it? And they said the disease is called SLC6A1. And I said, well, how can it not have a name? Like, I'm, I'm just so confused. And they explained that it's a rare disease so it's too rare to have a name. It's only known by its genetic location. And they said, we really know nothing about this disease. Hopefully you can come back and educate us. What happens in these situations is that the parents become the expert. And they gave us a, an article written out of Denmark and they said, this is really all we know about the disease. You're lucky you got that. I think the next part in your story is really pivotal in the direction that you took. And maybe it's your personality in general. But in this bad newsroom, you asked the doctors a question. Yes, I did. So essentially, the, the message conveyed was that there are 7,000 rare diseases. And Maxwell is just one of 34 people in the world with SLC6A1. And he is going to be deemed too rare to care by researchers, by biotechs, by the National Institute of Health. Give him the best life you can and go home and enjoy him. And I realized at that moment, and I, I just, I want to convey how sad of a moment that was like there is I think everybody thinks they've experienced their lowest point in their life and they have but nothing can ever ever compare to receiving that kind of news about your beautiful little baby and in that moment all of the hopes and dreams you have for your child to just be completely washed away and I looked back at the doctors and every single part of me wanted to melt down and crawl under a rock and never, ever emerge. But I realized this wasn't the time. I had the rest of my life to grieve and cry. But right now, Maxwell needed me and I needed to fight like a mother. And so I looked back at the doctors and I said, if this were your child today, what would you do 
right now? What would you do in the next week and the next month? And I said, because I'll figure this out myself. And they told me medical doctors aren't going to be able to help you start calling science. I feel like so many of us listening to you right now, we are all sitting in that bad newsroom and we feel the exact same way of, of that day. And what I think is just so amazing is that that's where your brain went. And that's the question that you ask. And the fact that that's the answer that you got, because I think depending on what doctor was in the room, they would have just reiterated to go home, get your child in early intervention and do the therapies. But for whatever reason, you were lucky enough to have the doctor in the room that said, cold call these people. That's your that's your best bet. And I think both of those things coming together is just incredible. I wish I could have been like that in that moment. You know, the, the great news is, is that because of my profession, I am immune to rejection. And just <laughs> from having grit and my upbringing, I just know that and I, I hope everybody listening understands that you have nothing to lose. Never be afraid of reaching out to somebody that might be able to help. Never be afraid to advocate for your child. The worst thing somebody can say is no, but the best thing somebody can say is let me look into that. And what we're doing for our kids, is, of course we're trying to help our kids, but we're helping so many other people along the way and it is truly this is going to be our legacy so let's never feel like we have to ask for permission let's just go and ask for forgiveness I like it and it's so true and I think it just kind of takes a couple times of doing that to sort of get comfortable with the idea of it it's true and after a couple of times I think one of the best things throughout my journey is learning how kind scientists are and how dedicated they are to their causes. And they've truly shown me just the best side of humanity. So calling this scientist in Denmark was the beginning of your crusade. And it's been so short and you've got so much done in that time. Tell us what started happening when you were making these phone calls. The day we got Maxwell's diagnosis, I went back to work and I said something really bad has happened and I'm leaving right now. I'm quitting. I'm never coming back. I didn't even grab my earbuds. I just walked out and I set off on this journey. I was so exhausted. I had to tape record phone calls, not to, not to be weird, but in case I needed to remember something. I called people in Asia and Australia at night, Europe the early morning, and the U.S. during the day. I was living on three or four hours of sleep. I read every textbook imaginable. And when I contacted somebody and they were unable to help me, I said, can you please connect me with three people that you think might be able to help me? And I just kept doing that until I became the expert in the disease. Finally, I realized through my research that this condition is not only treatable, it's actually curable through gene replacement therapy. And what that means is that for Maxwell, 
only one half of a faulty gene in his body isn't working. And so the technology exists outright today to just replace it. All of my efforts from that point forward really focused on gene replacement therapy. There were only five people in the world that I trusted with my son's life, and they were very hard to get a hold of. And so I started sending them snacks via Uber Eats until it was just so weird they had to call me back. (laughs) This is something I also loved about your story. And I was like, I wonder if I don't respond to Amber about the podcast, if she'll start sending me Uber Eats. But then I realized you'd send me cookies and not French fries. Well, uh, you're actually right about that. I would have. (laughs) But now I have actually transitioned to an edible cookie dough. That is the best thing I've ever eaten (laughs) in my life. So you are still welcome to receive the cookie dough because I'm so happy to be on your podcast. <laughs> that will make my husband very happy. So you're sending all these scientists and these doctors snacks, right? To let them know that they have this crazy mom who's going to get a hold of them no matter what. Tell us about your superior stalking skills in finally getting someone to listen to you. Well, I was quite the creeper, to be honest. And finally, my number one choice of a scientist called back and said, Amber, you can stop calling and emailing. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm very busy right now. I've received your snacks and it's very kind. And as soon as things settle down, I'll have a call with you, but I'm actually going to a conference tomorrow. And I said, well, which conference are you going to? Because, you know, I, I just go to so many of these that maybe we'll run into each other. And of course, that was a complete and utter lie. I was sitting in my pajamas. I hadn't showered for three days, taking care of uh, one and a half year old twins and staying up all night to talk to scientists. And he told me which one. And just like the movies, I called my husband and I said, you are on twin duty right now. And I drove to the airport and I said, I need a ticket to Washington, D.C. right now. And I showed up to a conference at the National Institute of Health without a ticket or anything. And when they said, well, you can't just go in there, I said, do you not know who I am? I'm Amber Freed. And I'm with so-and-so and so-and-so and named a couple of their keynote speakers. And they let me in. I went down and I sat down next to the scientist I had been stopping so hard to reach. Um, And that's when it became awkward because I had never thought of what I would do once I was sitting next to him. And so I looked over at Steve thinking, play it cool, Amber, (laughs) stoic. And he turned to me and he just said, hi, Amber. And I said, what a small world. And I said, how about dinner tonight? And he agreed. And we had a four-hour dinner. That's hilarious. When I was reading about that part of your story, I was just like, okay, if there's ever a movie, I need Reese Witherspoon to play Amber Freed because they're both little adorable people who get the job done. But they also have a little bit of a crazy eye and you better watch out. I would be really happy for 
Reese Witherspoon to uh, play me because I actually ask every single time I'm photographed to uh, Photoshop her head onto my body. (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. I love it. So after this scientist finally buckled to you, then what happened? Well, we went to dinner and he explained a couple things to me. The first thing was that I was right. The technology existed to replace this gene, um, but it was going to be a difficult journey. And what does that mean? Be prepared to raise between four and seven million dollars by yourself. Become the expert entirely by yourself and quarterback the entire process. And lastly, do all of this while trying to be a good mother. And that is really the part that I think I'm still struggling with. It's very hard to strike a balance when you're working on curative approaches for your children and to be a good mother. There's definitely a trade-off there of I spend so much time fighting for Maxwell. I'm losing time of being with Maxwell. Yeah, I think we can all relate to that for sure. And I don't think there is a balance necessarily, but I think intention in that matter is really important. I hope so. It's my major parenting guilt every single day. Well, I think everybody has it. And... (laughs) Almost no one is doing what you're doing. So keep going because this isn't just for Maxwell. This is for all of us in the rare disease community. You know, advocacy groups like you, parents like you, it's it's moving all of us forward a little bit. And it's incredibly important. And you're inspiring others to start from the ground up and know that they can make a difference. It's very true. And One of the most important aspects to my story that I'd like to convey is that rare diseases are only rare until they mess with the wrong mother. (laughs) So in our case, what we found out very early on is that Maxwell's disease isn't nearly as rare as we thought. The disconnect was that it wasn't on testing panels. And so because of that, how can you intuitively be diagnosed with something that doesn't exist? And we realized very early on that his disease isn't so rare. We're actually the 10th cause of autism, the sixth cause of epilepsy, and we play a major role in many psychiatric disorders. And so what really started as the opportunity to help Maxwell and like a mother's obsession with helping her son has now has the opportunity to help a multitude of people. And someday this will be on a newborn screening panel. Everyone's dream come true. Children will be diagnosed before they leave the hospital and a doctor will come in and say, your child has this horrible life limiting disease. And this is simply going to be a chapter in their book. 
this is not going to define them. They are going to be treated before they leave the hospital and your family is not going to have to suffer. And I just can't think of a, of a more purposeful life. So how much money did you raise in like two months? How much money have you raised so far? I've raised $2 million in about a year and a half toward our goal of $4 million. And how much has that gotten you in regards to research and your, your cure that you've basically found that just hasn't been approved yet, right? Yes. It has actually gotten us very far. So we have completed the tests in mice. We've constructed the actual gene replacement therapy. Now the next steps for us are to file an initiation for a new drug, an IND, with the Federal Drug Administration and actually begin the clinical trial to treat children. And if we're able to raise the money and things go as planned, we will be able to start a trial as early as next year. Yes. Yes. So how many kids are diagnosed at this point? Uh, our prevalence is one in 38,000, which equates to a couple hundred kids a year in the U.S. And we have about 300 people in our community. Okay. And so that's enough to start a trial. Very much so. And in rare diseases, keep in mind that we're never going to be like diabetes. Sure, <laughs> you sure. can get thousands of people. For us, even six children participating in a clinical trial is the Yeah, especially since it's so targeted, right? Everything that's led up to it is, it's meant, it's meant for it. I don't know how else to say that. So I have kind of a weird question, and I don't know if it makes any sense, but have you ever spoken with any of the doctors or scientists about their ideas or prediction on, like, after this treatment is done, after this, after this, you know, spinal tap is done, you know, everything's finished with clinical trials, how much of a switch can this be cognitively for our kids? I know the brain has lost a lot in development for where they are at this point. So if they get this therapy, what kind of backtracking is there, you know, cognitively? Have they lost out on something or will they be able to rebuild kind of from where they are and progress? Does that make any sense? It makes complete sense. And I can give you my mother's point of view. Scientists may disagree, but the, the truth is that nobody's going to know until we actually do it. My personal prediction is that Maxwell's MRI is normal. His brain has developed. Nothing is missing. It's just half of this neurotransmitter is not flowing through. My personal prediction is that the earlier kids are treated, the much, much better outcome for them. But in the case of Maxwell, he's three. His brain is not finished developing at all. And I personally think that it will be a case where he will regain the ability to learn and to cognitively develop. Now, he missed a fair amount of developmental years, even though we've had him in therapy. So there will be a full amount of catch up. But 
the possibility exists for him to catch up and progress. Right now, it's simply not possible. This is very cool, Amber, and I'm really excited to follow along with these clinical trials, and hopefully you can get back into the lab sooner than later. I don't know if they've started working again yet with COVID going on. How's that going so far with the progress and the treatment and getting it you know, into these kids? Well, I think every rare disease parent can agree that COVID has just been a complete a complete catastrophe for them because we were already socially distanced to begin with. We already had to watch out for our children's health at all times, but now we just lost more. Maxwell went from 12 therapy sessions a week to none. They are beginning to pick back up now, but you know, a three-year-old with sensory issues developmentally delayed is not going to cognitively understand masks and social distancing. And so now there's the element of judgment when you're out in public or needing to remove your mask to communicate with your child. Trying to have speech therapy with a mask on, which kind of defeats the purpose. Trying to do telehealth for your children when You're also trying to homeschool your other children and work. Um, And then in addition, the academic labs have shut down during this time and we're very far behind now. It's been quite a blow for us, but I do think the labs are coming back online and that many times when things seem like they won't work out, that's when they actually do. Well, and I think with how loud you've been and how persistent you've been in sharing your story and just educating yourself in general, it has moved things obviously so quickly for you. But I also think that, you know, the more you tell your story, Amber, in in all of the different platforms that you can go on, you're going to get heard and seen. You never know who's listening. And you're also here to be an example to other families and caregivers that, this is doable within a time frame that's going to help your kid and that it can happen. I think so. I really, I really do. It's obviously my dream. It's what I live for. And I hope someday that after I can put SLC 6A1 behind me, I can take on the next rare disease family patient and we can as a community, start knocking these diseases off one by one. Yes. Well, I'm happy to be in your club there. (laughs) That's awesome. Is there anything else that you want to leave for our listeners? What I'd like to leave everybody with is to just never lose hope. Science is moving very quickly. Keep trying. Don't lose faith. And also to remember that the rare disease community is one that nobody would ever want to join. But once you're in it, we're a very close-knit, warm group of people that are here simply to help one another. And I will make myself available to help anybody at 3 a.m. if that's the only time that will work for them. And I just really hope that my personal story can help 
I think it will, Amber. Tell everybody where they can donate to your cause and where they can find you to stalk you back. Sure. So our website is www.milestonesformaxwell.org. From there, you can donate. You can also sign up for our mailing list so you can track our progress. I'm big on positive vision. And when we actually host the clinical trial, I am having a huge party and Vanilla Ice is going to DJ. <laughs> if you sign up for our mailing list, you will be invited to the Vanilla Ice party where yes. he is going to perform Ice Ice Baby live. And I promise you will receive a personal invitation. <laughs> awesome. I have the perfect outfit for it. I just got a fanny pack, so I'll be there. Oh my goodness. Well, you, you're allowed to dance on stage now. <laughs> Awesome. Amber, seriously, thank you so much for chatting with me. And thank you so much for all of the work that you do for the rare disease community. I'm so excited to have been connected to you. And just thank you. Thank you for your inspiration and for all of your hard work. You're, you're awesome. Well, thank you for having me. And I look forward to staying in touch. Thanks, Amber. You're the best. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.